You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Okay, welcome everyone. Today I'm having a chat with Jamie Keach here, and um, we're going to be talking about some of the sectors that um, he's much more knowledgeable about than I am, um, in particular resources. But the resource space is kind of an, an interesting one, um, and it's, um, it ties in with geopolitics and so on and so forth. And so one of the things that um, we wanted, I wanted to bring to your attention was, was um, China and what's going on there. So I've got Jamie on the line. Are you there, Jamie? Hey, Chris. How are you? Good, mate. Good. Yeah, so um, let's dig into this. Maybe if we just start off with a little bit of your background. Um, many of the readers have, you know, we've, they've been introduced to you and they know who you are. But um, for those that haven't um, and for those that maybe aren't um, readers or listeners that are um, getting to listen to this podcast, just run through your background a little bit and give us a flavor as to what your um, what your thinking is and your expertise. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me today. Um, my background is primarily that I'm a mining engineer. Um, so I'm a Canadian mining engineer. I went to the University of Toronto here, and then I worked in exploration, both while I was a student there and after university. I worked in uranium exploration in the Yukon, I worked in gold exploration in Mexico and Nevada, and I worked uh, on BMS deposits in Albania. After that, I did a master's in engineering at the Camborne School of Mines, and then I've worked primarily in mining and mine finance since that time. So first I worked um, in Asia, uh, both in Hong Kong and Mongolia, uh, in mining, primarily coal mining, and then I worked in Canada for some time in the Arctic, building a big iron ore mine. And since that time, probably the last five years, I've worked in junior mining. So I've worked with junior and mid-tier miners that are in the project acquisition stage or in the construction stage. So that includes projects in Peru, Ecuador, uh, Brazil, a few projects in Brazil, and uh, the United States as well. And that's been mostly focused on gold, although we've had some copper assets there. And my role for, for that stage has really been looking at new assets, evaluating them, and then figuring out the best way to pursue them and acquire them if that's the, if that's the tack we've chosen to take. Very good. So um, you wrote an article the other day, on our blog with respect to some of your experiences when you were teaching at Nanjing University other in China. Um, let's just quickly cover that because I think it's really important to delving into the topic that we wanted to cover today, which is our friendly folks over in China. So yeah, you, yeah. you mentioned that you'd, you'd gone and you were studying a course then just, just give us a quick, um, what, what, what you found there and, and the kind of, and you and I have discussed this a bunch in the past, but let's just run through um, what you found and then what that will cover off what that means and what's, what China are doing on a global playing field in that space. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so some background on that. I, uh, I was invited by a friend of a friend who specializes in bringing foreign lecturers to China, uh, primarily British, Canadian, and American. Um, and it was to teach at a university called Nanjing University. Um, sorry, no, Hohai University located in Nanjing. And the students there would do two years at Hohai, and then they would do two years in the UK, and they'd get a joint degree from two universities. So these students were environmental science and earth science students, and I was invited to teach a course on uh, mining and geology and environmental science. So I spent six weeks in Nanjing. I did that two years in a row, and I interacted with a group of, of Chinese students, about 100, um, and kind of got to get a better idea of how university in China works um, and just how people were thinking there because I'd not had any experience really on the mainland before. And what I mentioned in the article the other day was one of the first things I noticed about being there was that the campus was full of African students. And uh, I mean, that might not seem so odd here in, in Canada where I am or, or Australia or New Zealand, but there were no other foreign people in Nanjing that I'd met at that time. Uh, and it wasn't something I'd anticipated. And as I spent some time there, I ended up finding out that most of these students were there on scholarship. So the Chinese government had sponsored these students to come. They were studying mostly masters or PhDs. And as part of their curriculum, they had to learn Chinese. Uh, they had to spend about two to four years there depending. And then they'd go back to their country um, fully understanding Chinese culture, the language, and I mean, feeling probably pretty indebted to these, to these nations because they got a free education, they got flown out there, they got paid, uh, you know, a, a modest salary, essentially, but it was generally for most of them enough to send some money back to their family, uh, wherever that may be in Africa, and probably more than they would have previously made at home. Um, and I mean, my TA, uh, that I had while I was there. He was from Ghana and he kind of explained that situation really well to me. He, uh, he, I mean, he found it challenging being in China, but he had pretty warm feelings to the opportunity that was provided to him. And the important takeaway from all of this is really, this is a strategy by the government to create well, yeah. and foster economic um, relationships in the places where they need something, right? It's, this is, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart, um, nope. per se. So, I mean, that's exactly it. So they go back, uh, wherever that may be, uh, the person I work with, say Ghana, and most of them will be far better educated than their peers there. They'll move into positions of, of power or authority, be that in private business or be that within government, which a lot of them tended to do, uh, from what I understood. And call it 5, 10, 20 years later, these guys are position, positions of authority. And so when foreign companies are coming in to, to mine, to work in oil and gas, to, to build infrastructure projects or what have you, this is gonna give the Chinese a massive advantage because they're gonna be dealing with people that understand their culture, understand their language, know exactly what they're getting into. And it's this, this, this 20 year planning that you're not seeing anywhere else right now. And so, I mean, they're doing this because if you look at the the growth that China's had for the last 30 years, which has easily been the, the biggest 
macroeconomic story, I think, of our lifetime. Um, I mean, you've got, I think it was 30 years ago, China made up less than 3% of global GDP. And today it's about 15% um, and growing rapidly. Um, Yeah. And it's already the world's largest economy as measured by purchasing, purchasing power parity, which is, which is, by the way, the metric that has always been utilized, even though when that first came out in 2015, which is when they surpassed the U.S. as the world's largest economy, there was a bit of a hoo-ha and <laughs> had a bunch of Harvard grads and stuff coming out saying, oh, no, we shouldn't, that, it shouldn't be measured that way. It's not fair and we're going to measure it this way and whatever, because the argument was that, well, they've got 1.4 billion people and so it's not the same thing. You can't measure it against another U.S. who's got 350 million people. But anyway, the point is that that's how it always be measured. And we can argue whether it's measured right, wrong, or otherwise. But the point is that the, the China is, for all intents and purposes, it's already the largest, world's largest economy. And it's, um, um, it's certainly with the rate, the rate of growth, even if the rate of growth collapsed to half what it is today, it will still continue to... Um, grow at a more rapid rate than um, than the West, certainly than the US. So, so that's a reality, and and it's it's interesting because it's not one that's actually fully understood by many Western people. I was just um, I was on the phone with um, uh, with a friend just recently um, this morning, actually, and we were talking about it because I was in a um, a business class the other day, business class lounge, and I was chatting to these Americans who were there, and they all were doing business in China. There's four of these guys. And I was kind of just, you know, running a bit of a sort of non-analytical test just to try and, you know, gauge um, some ideas. Anyway, so I asked these guys, firstly, I was asking them about, you know, the perception of China and what was going on. And, you know, they were unequivocal about the fact that um, it was was growing and um, there was a lot of capital available and it was, for all intents and purposes, good. There was a few bitching and moaning about, um, you know, doing business with them and they're hard, you know, hard nosed businessmen, right? Chinese are not known for being um, philanthropic or anything. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they were, they were, they were pretty positive about it. And then, and then I said to, I said to these guys, um, do you think that the, um, the Chinese economies, um, uh, going to be, you know, substantially larger than the U.S. or what? And and where do you think it is at now? Um, now, I, I, the reason I asked this question, Jamie, was because I'd already been looking at the numbers, and I knew yeah. that China was already the largest economy. And they they turn around and say, "Oh well, you know, China's going to be big. It's going it's 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 very big now, but it's going to be big. Um, I think it'll probably sort of." One gentleman said, oh, "I think it'll probably like reach the U.S. reach where we're at in the U.S." in about 20 years time. And I just sort of smiled to myself and I thought, well, hang on a second. This is a guy who's in China. Like your average, average Joe has not even been to China, right? This is a guy who's in China doing business in China. And he's got this perception that, oh, they're going to be, you know, reaching us in 20 years time. And that's kind of shocking. I mean, these guys, it is. China is what? Yeah. It's four times the population of the United States, something like that. Yeah, so they got 1.4. America's got about 350. Um, yeah, so four to five times. So and, four to five uh, times. 
they must know that, <laughs> right? Like, well, there was, there was well, working in China would have some yeah, rough yeah. idea of the population. But it, it just, like, it just made me think, Jamie, it just made me think that if your average guy, businessman who's actually doing business in China, um, and look, this, this is no, by no means a statistical example. This is just a bunch of guys in an airport lounge, okay, um, sitting in a business lounge. So if, you, if, if these guys couldn't, didn't know that and didn't figure that out, then what chance does the average person have of fully understanding that as of today, right now, the Chinese market, Chinese economy is the world's largest economy. It's the world's largest market. And you cannot, you cannot split econom, economy, politics, and military. They're all intertwined, okay? So when I look at it, you've got China, which is the world's largest economy. You've got the U.S., which is the world's largest military. And on a political level, I think it's fair to say that China is not at this point, adequately considered um, an equal, you know, with the U.S. What do you mean by that? Do you mean by their effectiveness of operating politically or the political system is not considered on par with I think, I think this is a Western viewpoint in that they're not, ah, yeah. well, for starters, they're not considered legitimate, right? We, you know, the idea coming out of the Cold War was that the U.S., um, prove to everyone this is the model. And the model's two things, democracy and capitalism. It works, and it's better than anything else. And so then there's the, the, the viewpoint that, well, that's like, shit, guys, we proved it to you. Like, you, Why would you try anything else? Okay. And so there's, you know, you still come across people who, who will, like, harbor this notion that China at some point is going to become democratic. And I think it's just like, so- that dog won't hunt. That's not going to happen. I have a story um, I would like to interject with you. Um, sure. When, when I was teaching there, I, one, of the, one of the experiences that really stood out for me was I had this student, uh, one of my best students, and she would always walk with me after class to, to the bus or to the cafeteria or wherever I was going. And she's telling me about her days, her problems. And she was talking about, uh, I think it was the next day, she was scheduled for one of her other classes to, to, to participate in a debate. And uh, the debate was, um, how did it go? So the debate was, what is better? Having many choices and many options to to choose from on on an issue or only having one choice and one option. And she said to me, she was like, ah, you know, I'm not sure what to do. I didn't get the, I didn't get the side I wanted and I don't know how to argue for it. And I was like, yeah, that would be really hard. I don't, uh, you know, I don't know how you'd, argue for just one option and she was like no no i wanted that one option she's like choices are bad you don't you don't want to have choices you just want to have uh, the one option because that makes life much easier and much better and that one experience for me just like completely high like both of us assumed the other the other side was just the obvious choice <laughs> and it was like such a it was like such an eye-opening experience and that's a, that's how that whole presumably that whole that, a, a big part of that nation thinks mm-hmm. yep yep and it's i would never i would never have guessed it to be honest well it's i mean look um the chinese government and xi jinping in particular has um one of his main mentors was leon kung from singapore yeah and so we look at the singaporean model it's one choice it's one political choice 
mm-hmm. economic freedom, but one political choice. Yeah. Um, and and as you mentioned the other day, mercantilist. I mean. Yeah. And we can't. You can't argue. Well, you can, but I think you're going to fail. You can't argue that um, Singapore is a failed state or anything of that nature. Um, you can argue about yeah. what it might mean going forward. You could argue whether it ends up becoming dystopian. You could argue whether it addresses too much hands of, of um, control in, with a few. There's all those arguments you can have, but um, it doesn't really matter what you and I think. It matters what is likely to happen, right? And that's the most important thing. And the important thing is that the West does not legitimately see China and the Chinese model. I don't think it's legitimate. And so on a political level, I made the comment that they're not seen as an equal. And that is certainly the case um, across Western nations. Yet they are economically a massive force, far bigger than even businessmen doing business in China realize, right? Sure, um, yeah. And so, so there's a disconnect there. And that's, that could be a risky one. And I say risky because it, it leads or could potentially lead to significant miscalculations, right? If you're, yeah. if you think you're dealing with someone that's like, let's go and have a punch up, right? And this guy looks like he's a wispy little puny guy, but you don't realize he's like a Taekwondo champion. Like that's a significant miscalculation to make. Well, you're right? just essentially underestimating your opponent, right? It's a, uh, exactly. When Trump sits down at the, you know, trade negotiation table, how is he going to approach it if he thinks he can just push these guys around? Exactly. And, and that's, so let's go there, right? Let's think about this and how this can, um, can play itself out because it's happening today, right? So if we think about, well, let's go back to the Obama era. Obama era, they said we're going to have a pivot to Asia, which never really happened. Right, they stayed stuck in a quagmire of the Middle East, and they're still there. Um, And so that never really happened. In that time frame, China wasted no time in in dominating that entire region, economically, politically, um, and even increasingly on a military basis. And we only need to look at the South China Seas to see how that's been playing out. And and if you think about and, and the way that they have, they, the way that they play the game isn't like if I punch you, you don't punch me back. It's like I punch you and you, you know, take away my pencils kind of thing, right? So remember when we had, maybe that's not the best example, but so you go back to um, the spat over that Chinese had with the Philippines, right? Um, over some of the islands in the South China Sea. And then the Philippines was like, okay, well, let's take this to the World um, Council and then take it to arbitrage because, you know, they didn't have the political and military might to be able to tell, tell the Chinese go away and, you know, kind of secure the islands. So that all happened. <clears throat> and and the result was that um, they said, no, 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 that's the Philippines um, own those islands. But remember, the, and the U.S. had the veto power and all of that, and there's certainly a lot of significant influence that the U.S. has with respect to what, that decision. Okay, yeah. so that was now considered to be like this world power that said, yes, this is the way it is. It's the Philippines. China, you need to back down and behave yourselves. 
And so China turned around and said, well, we don't, we don't like that. We, um, but they didn't go um, to the Court of Appeals or anything of that nature, all right? All that they did was they just waited for um, shipments from the Philippines, bananas in this case, to come in, and they let them rot on the um, dockyards. And they said, oh, that doesn't have the right papers, and they just created a bloody mess <laughs> so that these things just rotted there and they couldn't get paid and they couldn't get paid and they couldn't get paid. And they just kept doing it until the Philippines turned around and said, okay, well, the island's basically yours. So they used and, the economic power to, to get an influence um, as they wanted to have it shaped. So they didn't, they, they just surpassed the whole world council decision um, and because at the end of the day, what happens is more important than what everyone thinks should happen. And they, and they realize that. So anyway, that's a good example. But the point is that the, the economic influence throughout Asia is, um, at this point, I'd say it's pretty untouchable. Um, it's, it's very, very strong. Um, there's Japan in there, which is, you know, causing some problems. And then you've got obviously the South Korean things and you've still got military so- bases with the US and all, but, Probably, that, would you say besides Japan and South Korea, do, do any any Asian countries rely more on the U.S. than China? I mean, I would have I would have even have thought that Philippines, based well, look, on their if we, history with the U.S., would have been yeah. I I, I mean, is China I mean, look is China I'm, control I'm, Asia now? In your opinion? Ec- economically, China is the largest trading partner of every single one of those countries. Okay. China is the largest trading partner of the U.S. too. It's also the largest trading partner of Africa. It's also the largest trading partner of Australia. It's so economically, it is this behemoth. Okay, what we haven't yet seen is that they politically have um, flexed that muscle. They kind of did with the Philippines, right? But they didn't use military. Like there were no gunboats or anything like that. They just, like I said, they just hit them economically, and they got what they wanted, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the, you know, Sun Tzu, the art of war, right? And it's like the, the best way to win, the, win your fight is to, um, what was it? Not, I think you had it in your blog post. And it's basically to win it without fighting. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so they, like, they did that with the Philippines. So, so that's, that's the case right now. Then we say, okay, well, we've got these trade wars that are happening today. Okay, well, what does that potentially mean um, for... For, for impacting on China. Well, I know what it does mean. It does mean that China is going to push more towards doing trade um, with friendlier parties. And certainly those that they've got under their influence are going to be easier to deal with. So this is going to push them to doing more trade with Russia, more trade with Asia, more trade with Africa. And then that in itself probably creates greater economic influence with those countries okay so as these countries become more reliant on china i guess that puts them in a position when when push does come to shove on the next uh you know international issue who are they going to side with and if they're totally reliant on china i mean it's it's an obvious choice well that's that's where i said that you know where there's this disconnect in narrative it can potentially be quite dangerous because of miscalculations. So take, for example, Australia. Australia's largest trading partner is China. Now, 
philosophically, Australia has always been more aligned with US interests. And, and um, you know, when there was the war in Iraq, Australia sent soldiers to fight in that. The war in Afghanistan, Australia sent soldiers to fight in that, and so on and so forth. Um, China doesn't send, didn't send soldiers to fight with the US in Iraq, right? Um, so you've got philosophically, there's, there's a much stronger, closer alignment between the US and Australia than there is between Australia and China. However, the economic might sits with China. So let's pose a hypothetical situation. Let's say that Trump doesn't manage to inflict the kind of force or pain that he wants to inflict on China, right? And he decides that he's going to use a different chess piece and he's going to bring out a different one and he's going to go to Australia and say, as an ally, I need you to assist me in this and I want you to impose tariffs and restrictions on trading with China because we've designated them as a rogue state or as a whatever the hell you want to call it, pick some narrative, and we need you on board. What do you do if you're, a, in, if you're the Australian um, government? What do you do? Do you say, yes, you're, you know, we're philosophically aligned, we've always stood by your side, blah, 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 we're going to join you? Or do you turn around and go, well, hang on a second, this is our largest trading partner, and we know that if we hit them, they're going to hit us. How do we manage this? So, and that's where I say you can have miscalculations um, that could be quite significant. Now, that's without having military intervention on any of these things. And we do know that trade wars can turn out into um, real wars. That's clearly evident from history. Yeah, and um, with China as well. <laughs> which, I mean, look, this is, we're not dealing with some sandal-wearing nomads in the fucking desert. This is, you know, <laughs> this is a global nuclear power um, with the resources um, to tackle these things. And again, we've seen that they, they're very reluctant to bring out and, and waste time and energy and money on things that they don't need to. They're prepared to play, play the long game. So um, one can hope that that we don't get into any shooting wars. But nevertheless, these are risks that increase every day. Um, but if we think about what they've been doing in terms of this economic influence, Oval is a perfect example. I mean, this is literally you know, Marshall plan on steroids. They've already spent a yeah. trillion dollars in this space and they're spending hundreds of billions annually um, building economic relationships with um, these countries throughout Europe, throughout Africa, throughout Asia. And you realize that at some point that, look, they're buying political influence, they're buying economic influence, but with it comes political influence. And behind politi political influence is always military to back it if needed. So that's, that's where you don't want to have these miscalculations, you know. Um, and it's interesting because, like, I, 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 gave, um, I gave this example the other day. Because we know that China, for example, owns the ports in Greece and the airports. 
Um, yeah. And they've been doing this like they own the Sri Lankan ports and a bunch. So anyone can go and research all the stuff around Oval. The point is that they own significant resources across the globe in Africa and everywhere else. But let's just take Greece as, as an example, which is their conduit into Europe. So now they own the port there. And let's say that Russia and China get a bit of a spat going. And the U.S. says, oh, hang on a second. We want to just, you know, um, go and put a warship in in the port in Athens or maybe a couple of submarines. And they've always had fairly friendly relationships with the Greek government. So they go to the Greek government and they go, guys, we need to um, go and you know, make this happen. And the Greek government go, well, we could maybe, but... Um, you know, we've got a little bit of a problem. The problem is that the, we don't own the port. It's owned by the Chinese. So we need to, you know, have a little discussion with them. And now you realize that the alliance between China and Russia is a strong one. Um, are China, is China going to be happy about the U.S. bringing in um, maybe nuclear submarines into the, the port in Athens that threaten Russia? I doubt it. So so what, what interests me the most about this is that, well, sort of the Western democracies have been, you know, thinking about the problem of terrorism and Islamic terrorism. There's essentially this paradigm shift that's going on that the average person has no idea that is happening. Um, you know, the av- it sounds like, you know, based on, on your evidence, maybe even the average person with links to China doesn't even understand it's happening. And, you know, under the surface, the the structure of global power is completely shifting and probably something is going to happen one day. People are going to wake up to this and it may, it may be too late. And, you know, you would, the Western world hasn't been positioned to take advantage of it or counteract it or, or establish itself. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, look, there's never been a time before where you've had a global power, economic power, that hasn't translated that into political and military power. Never happened. So, I mean, there's been times when you've had an economic power rising and they've tried to translate it into political and, and military power and they've, they've um, done so unsuccessfully and they've receded, okay? So, um, Japan, Japan's a good example. So it does, like, just because something's going one way doesn't mean that it's a linear path. It might succeed. It might not succeed. What we do know is that China is the rising economic power. That's unquestionable, undeniable. It's also an increasingly strong political power. And we only need to look at the, uh, again, the economic arrangements like trading in oil and gold contracts and all that kind of stuff that's taking place, which by the way, just de-risks their, their, their currency for them. Um, And, if it de-risks their currency and their, their economic risk, that also de- decreases the risk of civil strife, um, which gives them stronger political power um, to be able to, to manage anything. So those are all happening, and they're happening increasingly at speed. Um, now, so, so we know that's happening. What they haven't, because I've been looking at this, and I thought, okay, well, what does it look like from their military standpoint? And they've been growing... They've been increasing military spending, um, but it, it's, it's still a far way off um, what the U.S. spends, um, and their military is nowhere near as, um, as large or as powerful. But what is interesting, and I've looked at this, 
if you look at where where China is spending enormous amounts of capital, um, forget about the military, but just in general, they are spending a lot of capital um, in trying to change China from a low-cost producer of goods to the world to a higher quality provider of goods. So it's going from, and, and this is not unusual. Like remember Japan did this, like you, you'll remember, you know, Japanese goods were considered crap. Like you had Jap crap. It was like anything coming out of Japan was just rubbish. This is probably like when we were, you and I were little kids. And then that trans, then eventually they, because they were doing, what they were doing was copying, um, you know, German goods and British goods and so on and so forth, and then doing them cheaper. And that's fine. So they did that until they got to the point where they had a larger middle class. And um, anyway, cut a long story short, now Japanese goods are high quality goods. They're like anything coming out of Japan, you, you, you associate with quality. You don't associate with rubbish. Um, yeah. On the other hand, much of the stuff coming out of China, we associate with rubbish. So people make the, the calculation, they go, oh, well, like China's good and they're big and all, but now nah, they just make rubbish. But they don't understand that that's just part of the transition. And China's spending an enormous amount of money on transitioning to a, um, a higher quality um, production society. And they can do that now because they've got a growing middle class, so they can sell to their own middle class. So and what, where would that be mostly focused? Is that on electronics? I was just going to say. going to be like cars and whatnot, like the Japanese, or what well, do you think on that? Okay, so the, 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 firstly, China's now the world's biggest filer of patents. Okay, so it's, it, this is developing Chinese technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could say, well, they're the largest filer of patents because there's, like, there's a bloody hell of a lot of them, right? And that's true. Um, but it's still significant and it shouldn't be dismissed um, without consideration. But here's the thing, the leading, guess what the leading sector within those patents is? Artificial, it's artificial intelligence. Now, um, and in particular, things like quantum computing. We already know that they have the largest, most powerful quantum computer on the planet. They've been sending satellites into space, all this sort of stuff. And then I, so, so we know that's taking place. They're spending and they're, they're increasingly the leaders in technology. You know, it's funny because there's a, um, a gene that I've been known for years and he's like ex Silicon Valley and he spends a lot of time in China. And he made the comment to me a couple of months back and he said, look, you know, Silicon Valley is still a hub of intellect and it's still this, this coalescing capital of, of human intellect. He says, but People got no idea what's going on in China. He said it's just like it's it's not just a competitor. It's it's beyond that. And you know, people just in the West don't seem to understand how significant a player they are. And so that's all interesting this- because I mean, the typical stereotype you hear often is that innovation doesn't really exist in China. You know, they're great at copying. They're- exactly. Exactly. Excellent work, worker bees, but like they're not creating yep. new technology. They're not inventing new things. Yep. This so this guy, this this VC guy, he's he's dismissing well, look, that. He's how, saying that's not true. Correct. But think about it. If they've already built the world's most powerful quantum computer, 
Like, how can we turn around and go, oh, well, they're just monkeys who, who just copy stuff. Like, they've already yeah. beaten you. Like, so, I mean, you can say it, and, and, and I understand it, and you understand it because people are looking in the rearview mirror, and they're going, well, you know, a lot of the stuff coming out of China is rubbish, and certainly you go back 10 years, and it was even more rubbish. And, and I mean, we probably years, have to you know, so, think of the number of Chinese-born, uh, U.S., Canada, Australian, educated engineers and scientists. I mean, I went to a university in Canada and probably 30% of my class in engineering was Chinese. Yep. Yep. So, so now let's go back to the, the military side of things. Okay. So they're spending a huge amount of capital on artificial intelligence and on quantum computing. And then you look at wars and you look at major wars and there's that old saying that the generals always fight the last war. So like you've got in the West, you've got this, like they're spending more money on like more fucking bombers and, and you know, Navy ships and rubbish like that. And you've got the Chinese are spending it on technology. Now, if you think about, go like to the Iraq war, the, 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 the one, for, um, the first Iraq war, that was like a devastating defeat. It was over in like weeks. And, um, and I remember reading about this some time back. The reason, apparently, that it was such a catastrophically, um, shall we say, favorable defeat, it depends on whose side you're on, but it was, it was such a, a rapid um, success, wasn't necessarily the firepower. Yes, the U.S. had much more firepower, it had better technology and so on and so forth. The main element behind it was that the U.S. went in and they took out their communications infrastructure. So the generals didn't, couldn't talk to the guys in the field. No one had any communication. So they were completely lost. And that's how they just took them out. They just picked them out like fish in a barrel. So, the, you know, when you think about the cyber war, right, that's where the next war is. It's cyber war. If, if you could have battle carriers off the um, coast of Beijing, millions of them, or maybe not millions, but you could have entire fleets of formidable power. Um, but if you, if their communication systems are hacked and taken out, they're pretty much worthless. So you've got the central point of risk that is really central. I mean, it's, it's significant. Um, yeah, and I look at so. who's spending the most money and time in that space. I'm like, it's the Chinese. So I don't, I'm not making a judgment call one way or the other. I'm just saying this is interesting. Um, and well, I, I mean, so we, it sounds like someone could be in danger of essentially being the Polish riding into World War II on horseback, right? Yeah. Yeah. Against tanks. Like, yeah. It's fun. And I mean, so, as technology speeds up, those different, like, even a small difference in computing power presumably can make a big, uh, well, look, big impact. Jamie, I mean, you know what we do. Yeah, it's asymmetric stuff, right? We're always looking for asymmetric investments. So, what's more asymmetric than having the ability to hack? A system and take out an entire field of operatives or um, or a military fleet of a navy fleet, like with a with a computer or with a team of guys um, on a computer. That's 
it's true asymmetry. And we keep seeing that in, in wars. I mean, it's like you look at Afghanistan and like, well, how is it that you had a bunch of goat herders in his sandals fight off the world's largest military? Like they did it to the Russians and then they did it to the US. You go, how did that work? One of the reasons was the um, Stinger missile. So the Stinger missile cost you a few hundred thousand dollars. I think it was about a million dollars when they first came out. No, it was, it was under the million. It was like a few hundred thousand bucks for a Stinger missile. And now they're even cheaper. So these guys have access to these things. And that can take out a Black Hawk helicopter, which costs millions of dollars. So there's asymmetry. Yeah. And it can be used without, like, you don't need significant training in the thing, right? You just need a guy with a, strong enough to hold it and aim it in the right direction. And, you know, you're right for away. So that was a significant uh, development in technology that allowed um, the, um, the Taliban to, to fight off the... And they're still fighting there. And like, you know, the US still hasn't won years and years later and billions and billions of dollars later. So that's true asymmetry. So I look at this and I'm like, China's spending a lot of money on, on the stuff that will probably be utilized in the next war. Um, I'm not but saying don't that. You, don't you think the US is as well? I mean, I'm they're, just gonna they're say, not, I'm not slowing down. I'm not saying that. they haven't. No, they haven't. But... But again, like all of this just comes down to the dynamics. If you've got the most, got the strongest economy, you can divert, divert more resources um, to whatever you want. And where you've got a political system there, which decides how that capital gets diverted and has like, no one's going to argue with you, right? Because it's not democracy. Um, there are, we could argue that there's certain advantages to that. Um, you can argue that it's not the best deployment of capital resources, depending on what it is that you're trying to get. But we can't argue with the fact that if they want to develop and deploy resources in a particular fashion, there's nobody stopping them doing so. When they want to build a highway through your town, they build it. All right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, you've seen it. You've been over there. It happens. It gets done. And it happens blindingly fast. That, so, uh, that city where I worked, I mean, one year I worked just outside of the city at the, at the university campus, and there was no subway there. The next year I came back, there was a fully functioning subway that went downtown to the city in, in, yeah. in a year. I mean, I'm yeah. from Toronto, and they've been trying to build new subways there for 25 years, I think. And they're still not. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> like, every four years, the plan gets canceled, and they start again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like if you can, if you go back to the OA crisis, right? Everybody, like again, I, I made the comment that all the central banks went and um, coordinated policy and um, really looked for the markets and everything else. And in the US, they spent I think it was nine. Don't quote me on this, but it was about nine hundred sixty-eight billion. Okay, and what they did with that nine hundred sixty-eight billion was that they basically bailed out the banks and the insurance companies and um, kind of restabilize the system, okay? So you could look at that and go, what did they get for that? Well, they got a system that didn't implode. It cost them 968 billion. China spent, I think it was 400 and something billion. Let's call it 500, it was just under 500 billion. Guess what they got for it? 
Well, they got high-speed trains, the, the best in the world. They got villages that now connect with um, cities. Um, and they got infrastructure that they're going to have for the next 100 years. That's what they got for the half a billion. And the U.S. So basically just propped up a system that had previously collapsed. You know, yep. that, like, that analogy kind of makes me think of World War I, right, where Europe was the, the wealthiest place on Earth by an order of magnitude. And then it just imploded in World War I and they burned up all that money. Um, mm. And then that was it. I mean, that's when the slow transfer of power to North America. Yep. Yep. Because the U.S., yeah. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. And then, and then saying, okay, well, that's a long view and, and it's one that's going to have many iterations and we might be wrong. So you've got to keep on top of it and understand that we don't know everything and, you know, keep looking at these puzzle pieces and see where they're moving. Um, but all of that is still going to take resources. The, the coming back to the trade wars thing that China has, um, an increasing middle class. Much of Asia has an increasing booming middle class. Trade between China and broader Asia has been accelerating. I don't see that stopping because there's nobody there that's, again, none of these Asian countries are going to turn around and want to have a trade war with China. The only way that I could see that potentially having conflict is if the US or Europe or um, probably the US turns around and tries to force their hand with potential with so-called allies and says to, well, it wouldn't be the Philippines because Duterte will just call them a son of a whore or something, but it would be, because <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> a classic, it would be, you know, um, trying to influence some of those countries to put pressure on China. Um, and so like you, it could be South Korea, you know, Hey, the South Koreans, you guys need to do this or we're going to pull out our military bases and we're not going to protect you against Kim Jong-un. They could do that. Right. Um, and then South Korea is in a pretty sticky situation. Um, right, I mean, they're they not going to write off their, their foothold in Asia though. That's the other thing. Like I assume the U S doesn't want to pull out of Korea and Japan and what have you and completely lose their base there. No, no. On the contrary, um, I, I, yeah, I don't don't disagree at all. Completely, hundred percent. The only thing is that the economic influence is just not there anymore from the West. Yeah, it's it's, it's already shifted, and it's shifted sufficiently that those players, on a political level, are going to be very reticent. Um, to give up what they've currently got, which is what's keeping them going. And that's the, that's the, the China relationship. So um, what that means, I guess, is that the trade between those countries will continue, if not accelerate, um, because it's, it's like there'll be a bolstering. Like if you, if, you're current, if you and I were currently trading with Joey over in the corner and he's making our life a bit difficult and we're already you know, trading with Freddie and Susie, like we're just going to focus more of our attention with Freddie and Susie. It's just, it's common sense. So it's going to push us to, to doing more business with those that are friendly to us um, and push us away from doing business with that. Those are with those that are not that friendly. Um, so it's not to say that there won't have a big impact. The U S is still a massive market and, and this will hurt China. You know, these, these, 
trade tariffs and that are definitely going to, they're going to hurt. Um, it's just trying to understand how that plays out. Um, and then what that means for various asset classes, right? And how best to actually go about positioning for that. So the one thing that we haven't discussed, and I think this kind of just to round it up, my thinking on this and throw rocks at it, this is under this sort of world economic order that we've had. Um, and certainly post 08, we've had a, a global coordination amongst all these central banks. That's all yeah. fragmenting now. We also know that most of these countries being, let's call it Japan, Europe, I know Europe's not a country, but call it an economic region, and the US um, are all running balance sheets that should scare the hell out of anybody. And they're not going to be able to pay those debts back, which is why I don't believe this is going to be a deflationary outcome because the you know, corporates will pay back debt. So you've got a corporate with a big balance sheet. You could sell that's deflationary. We've always seen that, but I don't think it's, it's holds true for sovereigns because they've got a printing press and they're going to use that well before they let any um, deflation take hold. So that's one element. The other is that in an environment where they take that stance and we're coming close to that now because we're already seeing divergence, like the feds raising rates, the ECB are not like, Trump doesn't give a flying toss about what the Europeans want to do at a policy level and likewise anyone else. And so we, you know, this rise of the strong men I've been talking about is, is important to understand because it means that that coordination has gone, it's finished. And that's going to create divergences in all of those main currency blocks, Euro, Yen, Dollar, which is what's been holding everything together. So now imagine a world where all of those become problematic much more problematic than they have been and there's a and there's an escape valve um and that escape valve is basically i'm not sure that's the right terminology but where you've got for example the us on a relative basis is now much more favorable us bond market is much more favorable than the european um, bond market say german bonds right because they're yeah. pursuing a different policy like raising rates so now you get capital shifting towards the u.s bond market as opposed to european bond markets it starts moving around a lot more quickly creates more volatility which creates more risk which increases interest rates if you get a point where the interest rates are which is basically inflationary you, we don't need a lot of shift of capital to things of tangible value. So we only need to look so at some of the stores of value. Stores of value. That's, a, that's right. Yeah. You, know, you know, we only need to look at countries that have been through this inflationary environments when, and you see that the things that people want to own are things like equities and commodities um, that will hold their value. Um, that seems like a really strange world today when you look in the last, in the rearview mirror, but actually it shouldn't be a strange thing to look at and think about, Jamie, because it's exactly where we are. It's just that the, the rearview mirror that we've had has been something very different, but it's actually not, it should be on everybody's mind, in my thinking, um, because you've got this 
central bank balance sheets that are completely insane. That we know they're not going to pay the back with debt. Then you've got them all fighting with each other. So the coordination's gone. You're not going to, like the next crisis comes along, that the Fed's not going to open swap lines with Germany. They hate them. Russia has a problem. They're not going to help them. Forget about it. So that creates a very, very different market environment. And in that environment, people want to have some store of value. And you could argue and say, well, it's, it's gold. And, and the gold bugs would love, and, love that and jump up and down. And I'd say that they're kind of partly right, because if you go back through history, the strongest and best thing to own in that space typically is actually energy. It's not gold. Gold does well, sure, but it's energy. So that's one thing to think about. But in that sort of environment, resources are um, very, very attractive. And then, as you and I know, we look at that space and we go, well, okay, well, what's resources look like today? Well, for many of them, they've been decimated over the last decade. So it creates a different, creates a, a, an interesting setup of kind of moving pieces of the puzzle. Um, I think the risk's relatively low. Um, and then the, the reward potential, given different outcomes, um, could go runs from okay to extraordinarily high. Yeah, I um, mean, a couple of years ago, Robert Friedman was talking about resources being priced for essentially end of the world prices. That mm -hmm. you know, the price of copper, of nickel, of iron ore was you couldn't mine it for that much. Yep, there was mm -hmm. almost no or very few mines in the world that were profitable at these uh, at these prices, and it's. It's all the money have been going into into tech, into you know other industries, and the only way you I mean his point was that if it keeps going like this, it's the end of the world. We stop building things, we stop making things. There stops there mm -hmm. stops being materials to support these other industries. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think people are starting to cotton onto that and starting to be aware of that. I mean, we've seen nickel in the last year or so, get back up to $6 after it's crashed. I talked about the other day, uh, you know, platinum and palladium. And, you know, palladium, I believe, is at an all-time high. Rhodium's at a, at a spike. And, you know, platinum is, I think, just waiting to take off over the next year or so. And uh, this, this store of value, these real things, I think are starting to become appealing to investors again. Yep. And that's, and that's without a lot of these other geopolitical things that we talked about, right? That's just supply and demand. It's just like you say, or like Friedland said, you know, you ask yourself the question, is this entire sector going away? Like, are we ever, are we going to have a situation where we don't use nickel again? Well, I mean, in an Armageddon situation, sure. But then we've all got bigger troubles than that. So. <laughs> um, yeah, bigger things to worry about than nickel price. But, exactly. you know, you said something kind of interesting a moment ago, and we talked a little bit about this before, but that, you know, instead of going for gold, or typically it's been energy. Now, do you think investment in energy is going to shift over the next few years from, you know, typically oil, gas, uh, maybe a bit coal, to these new sort of battery electricity metals like uh, lithium, cobalt, uh, vanadium, but also also nickel, also copper for electric. Well, I don't, I don't need to really think whether that's going to happen. It's already happening, Jamie. Yeah. I mean, if you look but at that sector. Think it's almost like these are being shifting from just 
commodity metal commodities to kind of merging with the energy space which is kind of interesting yeah so if you think about traditional energy natural gas oil there's no tangential stuff to it like the the natural gas is just natural gas like unless you get into oil sands and then you go okay well you need water components and you need like there's other sort of periphery um, uh, materials that are utilized in the processing of of energy in that space for the most part things like natural gas and and oil are very simple like it's their product and yeah there's transportation costs and logistic costs and all that kind of nonsense but you're going to get that any in any sector when it comes to the um, battery storage and um, let's call it alt energy there's more components to some of them so in batteries for example it's like all you know like there is no commodity called batteries right it's <laughs> no. it's like vanadium redox and you go okay well that's vanadium and it's a couple of other it's nickel and it's like there's so there's a there's a there's a bunch of components within that that technology which is now an energy energy um well it's energy containment with with that not an energy source per se but um so there's there's other factors that um, come into that and that is absolutely a hundred percent gaining traction and it's not something that people are paying much attention to because that is the future of mass energy storage and and we only need to look at the the, the percentages of the energy complex and what that's looked like over the last 20 years and the last 10 years and and you know now and we've had this and you and i've discussed this before we've had this wonderful setup in the early 2000s and mid 2000s where we had a huge amount of capital go into the alt energy space and it built out some wonderful infrastructure and then we had the busts so it all went tits up and um and and i say that's a wonderful thing because all of that um, technology that was built and all that infrastructure that was built then got placed into the hands of a few who now have a completely different opex structure and so it doesn't matter what that, that original uh, technology cost to build, right? It's, it's like your project um, that you got in Brazil, like you got a mine which has had hundreds of millions, over $300 million spent on it, okay? Yeah. And, and, and it, and it wasn't, didn't all just get pissed away, right? Um, much no, of I mean, the, the underlying infrastructure is still there. There's declines to the ore body. There's roads, yep. there's buildings, there's there's all the things you have to pay for that all the capital costs, but they're yep. they're gone now. It's and, and and so they're gone and today the cost of that is is literally a few million dollars. And you go like how does that work? Well it, it only works when someone else built it and, and for some reason, like strangely, nobody wants it not right now. But we get well, that like you get that I in, mean in, it's it's shocking you see this. I mean, this project as an example was worth a billion dollars at one point. A billion dollars. Yep. And I think it was $400 million was sunk into it. Uh, you know, millions in earthworks, millions in plants and, and other infrastructure. And then all of a sudden it's valued at nothing. It's at zero. So I and a few partners were able to pick it up for, I mean, I don't even know if it was pennies on the dollars. It was fractions of pennies on the dollar. Yep. Yep. No, no, we looked at the project. Anyway, so that's, that's a good example of the same thing. And so coming back to your question around energy, we had that in the alt energy space. And so today there's a completely different structure allowing for 
margin expansion in that business and for um, many of those technologies to be utilized. So the competitive advantage is, is now quite different. Um, and, and then, you know, we've, we've been talking about China. So we go back to China and you say, well, like, forget about these, all the world leaders coming together and agreeing on climate change and trying to reduce carbon emissions and all that stuff. China's got a much more significant reason why they want that to happen and why they are now the leaders in the world in terms of actually reducing carbon emissions. And that is reason is quite simple. The populace are literally dying from yeah, millions of people. die per year from particulate exactly. in the air and so I was and, I mean when I was there, it was smog yeah. every it was it looked like fog on the ground. I couldn't believe it. I, I yeah. had a hacking cough for weeks after I left. Yeah, I mean it's so, it's it's terrible. So so they're putting huge amounts of capital into that whole space. They're spending more money than anybody anybody else in renewable energy. They are um they've gotten rid of like the last um in certain um, provinces got rid of their last coal-fired power stations. Like they're going full on into uranium energy, um, vanadium redox flow, you name it. Solar. They got the world's largest floating solar um, plant, solar farm, and they are the world's largest generator of solar power now. So, like all of these things, um, there's a number of different tailwinds behind it and there's different reasons there's a, quite a political reason for doing that aside from the fact that it's economically or sorry um environmentally far more friendly um and so those are all you know really important sectors to look at and then looking at as you know those components behind those energy s- systems you know whether it's cobalt or uh, nickel or whatever it's uh, it's interesting to look at that because there's obviously then a sense of urgency that they need to employ in, in switching to these old energies, these, you know, quote unquote green power, where, I mean, in the U.S., it's saying it's, it's nice to have and people want it, but there's not the economic incentive where your, your populace, your workforce is dying off. There's two things. One, one is that they've got the economic incentive for sure. The other is, that, and, and I saw this in Britain. So Britain came out in, ah, uh, it was, I'm going to say it was like 2012 or something. Um, and they came out with a number of, you know, so-called initiatives um, to, to reduce the number of um, diesel cars on the road. And then, and, and they said, okay, well, like, we're going to have this, but I think it was 2015. Like they set a policy and they said, this is, this is what we're going to do. And we're really tackling it and da, da, da. And guess what? 2015 rolled around and hardly anything had happened. Like it was just politicians making a big noise and then they signed papers and like, but, but at the end of the day, it's just like, there wasn't, it didn't get pushed through. It was just ineffectual nonsense. And that's just not at all what's happening in China. Like, Firstly, they get shit done because they're not a democracy. Like there's, because what happened in Britain was like you had all of these lobby groups that came out and they just it, it just went through the courts backwards and forwards for years, and so nothing really ever happened. So you had all these policies that they decided they're going to have happen, but then behind the scenes for the next two two or three years, it just got fought about, and the lawyers made a lot of money, but nothing happened. So, um, and we know that. Europe and um, 
or many of the European countries and Britain now included has come out and said, oh, well, we're going to get rid of all um, uh, petrol cars and it's all going to be electric vehicles by and they've given dates and some of them were like 2030 and some are 2035. And anyway, they've given all these dates and it may or may not happen. I suspect it probably won't unless there's other dynamics that make it really economical to, to actually do that. But in China, it's like they haven't even said it's an initiative. They're just doing it. Like it's just there. They're doing it. They're not wasting time. Um, they've already got the um, more electric vehicles than any other country in the world. They're producing more, um, like everything. So um, this is a this is like you don't have to pontificate about it and say, "Oh, it could happen. It couldn't happen." It's like it's happening, right? Mm-hmm. And here's the other dynamic. And you know, anyone who understands um, economics would understand this. When you've got more and more something being produced, the cost of that per unit falls, which makes it more economically useful. And so then you have more usage of it, which then brings down the, the, the cost of it. And so we've seen this with solar and things like that. I mean, like the house that I'm in now, which we built about 15 years ago, when it was built, I remember looking at putting solar panels on the roof. And guess what? It was going to take me 30 years to pay it back. So I was like, bugger that. That doesn't, I don't even think I'll be on TV. You know, now, today, so what was that? Like say 15 years ago, it was just under 15 years ago. Today, my payback on that is under three years. So now, I mean, if, if I was to do it all again, I'd be like, yeah, I mean, probably, I should probably go and do it now and just toss a whole lot of solar panels on my roof because it's actually economical, right? Yeah. So, um, and then me buying it creates, you know, better um, scale of economies for the companies and so on and so forth. So all of that, 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 that pivot's taken place already in the alt energy space. It's happening. Um, they're just at the forefront of it. So then you, you look and you go, okay, what are the commodities that are utilized in all, in all of those um, uh, technologies? And, and, and then is there something there? Cause sometimes it's not like you're looking and you go, Oh, Maybe it's, I don't know, copper or whatever. And you look and you go, well, it's actually not that cheap. And there's a massive supplies of copper or whatever. And I'm just I'm talking rubbish. I'm not just using it as an example. Um, but where you can find them and you look at them and you go, hang on a second, this, this isn't being factored in at all. And we've come out of the bottom of a commodity cycle and there's actually half the companies have gone away and half the mines have been shuttered and so on and so forth. And you've got all this demand suddenly coming through for this this technology that's economically viable. It's like, hang on a second, um, that's the way to play it. Um, so that's that's kind of when a, when when we look at China, um, there are things that can halt some of this growth. And like I said, it's trade wars and things like that. Um, but on a risk-adjusted basis, um, it's hard to not. Be involved yeah i mean and it's interesting to hear you say that because i mean after the first 2008 and then again 2012 you know when commodity prices crashed people were saying you know this is the end of the so-called super cycle that you know china's growth has halted it's over commodity prices are going to drop down to whatever percent of what they were trading at and it's done back to business as usual um but you don't think that at all you think i mean you were saying earlier that even though, even if China's growth is half of what it is, it's still most more than most of the Western world. 
Mm-hmm. And you think it's going to continue to drive the price of these companies? Over the last, I think it's over the last decade, I was looking at some numbers, China quite accounted for 40% of the world's growth. Like it's just phenomenal. So, so yeah, a decrease in that is going to have an equal, equally large impact. And so you could look at that and say, well, that's a risk. But when I couple the existing supply and demand, the, techno- the fact that a lot of these technologies are actually now very viable when they weren't actually viable 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. And then I look at the whole geopolitical structure and the economic structure such that you've got countries with massive, massive deficits and um, uh, um, balance sheets, which they, they're not going to be able to pay back the debts. And what that's, how that's actually moved capital. Because when it's taken place, it's, it's, the consequence has been that capital has shifted into certain sectors. Um, and a lot of it's all been concentrated in those bond markets. So, mm-hmm. and now I'm saying that we're going to have that cracking because of these political divergences, which lead to policy divergences. And then that capital starts leaking out and, and it starts looking for a home either in some of the other sovereign debt markets, which all look pretty bad, but some, there's always going to be some that look less bad than others. So it can shift around a bunch, but only a sport, we only need a small portion of that to start seeking safety. And you say, well, what does safety look like in that environment? And I know what safety looks like in that environment based on my experience in third world countries. And, and again, people go, oh, well, but it's not third world countries. It's like, well, well, economically it is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how can you make the case it's not? I mean, you look at Britain's balance sheet and you look at, I mean, any of these, and you could say, well, they're no different, Oh, well, no, but the, but they're like rich. I'm like, well, sure, but I mean, <laughs> it's not an argument, right? It's not an argument against math. Like, so, so when I think about it, like from that perspective, and I say, well, where does capital flee to in, um, in that sort of environment? Again, when you look at history, it's like, I know where it goes to. It goes into stuff. It's it's yeah. that simple, and and so, um, I think that's 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 really the nutshell of it. Um, yeah, but um, so I think next next week um, we've got a couple more topics that we want to talk about, Jamie, um, and we'll have that for listeners next week. Um, we'll, be covering off a number of different topics. We've covered, we kind of touched on a bunch of them today, um, but I think they're all important to understand, you know, our worldview and and how we're tackling this and um, how you and I have decided on the best ways forward to, to actually do that. So I'm we're pretty excited. At, yeah, I mean, I'm excited for this as well. Especially, I mean, I don't come from a macro background. I come from a a mining commodities focused background. So looking at this, this bigger picture and seeing the bigger cycles helps put everything into perspective and then finding these companies which can leverage this opportunity and, you know, create the most bang for your buck when you want to get into to copper or to nickel or to wherever we decide to focus. Yep. Yep. Very good. Well, Hey mate, thanks so much for your time. I, um, I appreciate it. And, 
I look forward to our next discussions. Hopefully yeah, everybody enjoyed this as much as I did. And yeah, um, thanks we'll for be having back. me on today. No right, problem. Cheers. Take care. Jamie and I are going to shortly be launching a new service dedicated to private placements in the resource industry. If you have an interest in this, um, please make sure that you head over to the link at the bottom of this page, which will take you directly to our pre-launch list. This is, like I said, it's specifically dedicated to the resource space. Um, It is where I want to be placing my capital and um, over the next at least two to three years, So we believe that this is the best way forward for us and we believe it's probably the best way forward for you if you have an interest in and are an accredited investor. So head over, um, put your name in there and we'll give you the details when we launch the product. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at Thank you.